Turning your Bible with me to uh, Romans chapter 1, please. So uh, we're in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. We're getting to the end of our study, and uh, we're looking at the different... Uh, the different people in Proverbs that you want to avoid. What's interesting about Proverbs is the Proverbs introduces you to the people in life that you will meet. Uh, not specifically, you know, here's their name, but the types of people that you're likely to encounter, and it gives us wisdom and, in many cases, caution about those people. So, for example, we saw last time, and this is review, so this is not in your notes, but just if you missed last time, We've learned in the book of Proverbs over these last months about the fool um, who says in his heart there is no God. This is the person who just rejects God and the message of Scripture outrightly. We've learned about the adulterous woman, that, that person that is not your spouse, that uh, can be a source of temptation both relationally or sexually. Uh, we've learned about the sluggard. Uh, this is the proverbial lazy person and uh, why we want to be careful not to be a sluggard and to be careful hanging around them lest we become like them. We've learned about the violent. We've learned about the one lacking self-control. And uh, and interesting, that that sort of spills over into our discussion right now on the addict. Uh, We would call him, according to the Proverbs, the alcoholic fool, if you want to think of him like that. This is the alcoholic fool. We are introduced to him in uh, uh, actually earlier on, but uh, most recently in these three verses that you see on the screen there, uh, verse chapter 23, verse 20, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Uh, Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it, literally misled by it, is not wise. Proverbs 31, chapter, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. Remember, Lemuel is the king. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And so you can see in those three verses the theme that Proverbs is warning us about alcohol, about drunkenness, about people that get caught up in that. And it also gives us some reasons why we would want to be careful, right? Uh, It's expensive. It leads to poverty. It leads to recklessness. It leads to um, making unwise decisions, chapter 20, verse 1, as we are misled. And chapter 31, you know, you think, you know, of, of anybody in the kingdom that could enjoy alcohol it's the king right i mean he's got all that he wants at his disposal um he's the king he can order he can uh, ask for things and they are brought to him he's the one that has these week-long or in some cases month-long parties celebrating different parts of uh, kingdom life or family life and you're thinking man this this is the guy right and yet king solomon says to lemuel perhaps another king or perhaps uh, one of his own sons It's not for us because we as the leadership are supposed to be the standard of self-control and sobriety and clear thinking and godly living. And alcohol compromises all of those things. So be careful. And and we talked last time kind of backing into this subject uh, of what addiction is. It's a persistent, compulsive, sinful behavior 
which often involves the use of a substance and is characterized by tolerance, meaning you need more of the substance over time to appreciate the same effect, and withdrawal symptoms, which are physiological effects that happen to you, negative physiological effects when the behavior is discontinued. Now, in Scripture, you won't find the word addiction as we're uh, talking about it in your concordance. In most Bibles, you'll, you'll find it in some different versions of Scripture. But the, the way the Bible comes at the subject of addiction is by talking about drunkenness. Drunkenness is the main addiction that the Bible presents. And so when we're trying to understand addiction in the broader sense, what we do is we go to the Bible and we study alcohol in particular, and that gives us a model or a paradigm for understanding all types of addictions. And uh, if you'll remember uh, last time, we talked about several of these, right? Uh, we, we can sort of categorize addiction into two categories. There are substance addictions like alcohol, legal drugs, prescription drugs, and, and other things, uh, some of which are legal, some of which are illegal. Uh, and then behavioral addictions, and this, this may be new to you because you know, addictions typically, historically, have been you know, alcohol and drugs. Those are the two that we, we typically think of. But as you think about the behavior of addiction, and even more specifically, as you think about why people do that, and the heart issues, as Christians, we're interested in what's the heart, right? What's going on inside the person that would be leading them to those things? As we study those things more particularly, we recognize that there are many parallels, many similarities from substance abuse addictions and some of these other sort of compulsive behaviors that we see, like gambling, uh, like what is called social media addiction. And that it's not made it into the, uh, the, the psychological Bible, the DSM yet, but it's probably coming because this is more and more uh, something that people, psychologists are studying. Uh, food addictions, uh, the Bible would come at that calling it gluttony. Uh, sexual behaviors, you've heard of sexual addiction before, so it's kind of in our society is put in that category. Uh, video game addiction, so, sorry guys, I hate to get too personal here, but uh, video game addiction where um, it can just become a, a life-dominating behavior to the detriment of other responsibilities. Uh, internet, TV, cell phone, and then I, I put a blank there because the reality is we can turn almost anything into addiction. We can abuse the goodness of many of God's good gifts and turn them into something that is used immoderately or is used inappropriately. Uh, one of my favorite uh, authors is a guy named David Pallison. Maybe you've heard that term, you know of him. And uh, he has a great line in one of his articles. He says, um, uh, God gives us many good gifts, but he did not desire that we turn those good gifts into gods right and then he says this, this is the classic line they make good gifts but bad gods and that's true right you know praise the lord for food i like food do you right uh, uh praise the lord for the wholesome part of social media being able to connect with missionaries across the globe or or whatever but when those things become inordinate right when when we when we give them a role in our life that is controlling and um, immoderate and uh, now we're neglecting other things and now we're always looking at our phone and we're, we're disengaging from the here and now, right? I'm sitting there having lunch with you, right? And I'm looking at my phone the whole time, right? And how does that make you feel, right? It's like I'm not, I'm not showing care for my brother because I'm distracted. And we end up living 
distracted. I mean, do you struggle with this? Do you live distracted because of your phone? And you're only half there in the moment with your kids or your spouse or your coworkers or your grandchildren and Right? I mean, that, that's what we're trying to avoid is this good gift that God gives us that we abuse and now it, it's, it's ruling us instead of us managing it properly. Uh, we talked about this and, and uh, this is not in your notes, but if you missed this last time, it's really important that you see this. Um, we talk about addiction. We, we typically think, okay, you're putting things into your body, right? You're, you're drinking alcohol, you're putting illegal drugs in, um, and so we, just very quickly, we have to just review this again very quickly. Um, we need to remember that unlike our secular culture, the Bible teaches that people are comprised of an inner man and an outer man. The inner man is that heart that you see down there. Uh, that's where people desire and think and believe. And, and the Bible teaches that that inner man, that heart, is what drives our body. It drives our outer man. It drives our behavior. It drives our words. And uh, we put the brain in there because the brain, of course, is part of the body. And in God's amazing design, that, that inner man, that immaterial part of us, connects with our body, our outer man. And so when we think about addiction, uh, addiction is very important when we th- think about it from a biblical lens because the Bible teaches that we are both body and soul. And that the soul, the heart, the inner man, is the originator of everything we do in life. Now, look at that picture and tell me, is that what a secular world believes? Is this what you read in Newsweek and Time Magazine? Is this what you hear on the Addiction Center infomercials on your radio uh, as you're listening to the news in the morning? Now, okay, so think with me. What is the world's perspective on people? What is a secular view of how people are built or comprised? A man is basically good. What's that? Okay, we're controlled by environmental. It's, it's my environment's fault. Okay, what'd you say, Brandon? Okay. So, so here, here's the thing to see. Have you heard the? Have you heard this phrase somewhere in culture? Addiction is a brain disease. You heard that? Okay. You know where that comes from? That does not come from science. It comes from a philosophy. It comes from a worldview. Just take your hand and cover the bottom part of this picture. Okay? What, do you, what are you left with if, you, if that doesn't exist? What are you left with? Yeah. All you got is physical stuff, right? Okay, I'll do this for you guys. Hang on. Okay? We just cover the bottom up, right? What are you left with? Just the body, right? Just the brain. So that's, when you hear addiction is brain disease, that's not science. That's their worldview showing say your worldview is showing yeah your worldview is showing if you only believe in a material human being that that all a person is is biology that all there is is a body and glands and organs and and blood vessels and and hormones and, and organs if that's all you believe and you don't believe in a spirit or a soul or a spiritual heart or an image if you don't believe that of course addiction is a brain disease because you don't have another choice of course it has to come from the brain so when you hear addiction is brain disease, it's not a scientific conclusion. It's a conclusion based on what they assume about the nature of human beings, that we're just physical. There's no spiritual part of us. Now, footnote, I'm not saying that in addiction, your body isn't involved. Your body is very involved. 
There are physiological factors. There are medical aspects of this. I'm not dismissing it that your brain is not involved in any way. But the Bible, my point, guys, is the Bible teaches a different way of thinking about people. The Bible doesn't say people are just material. The Bible says we are both material and immaterial. And, and, the, and the reason that's so important is it's that immaterial part of us that the Bible says is the originator of all that we do. So at the end of the day, whether it's addiction or any other behavior, we can't ultimately blame our bodies for what we do. It's a heart issue, right? Now, our bodies are accomplices, right? Our, our bodies accomplice. Uh, how do you say that? Accomplice? No, what's what's the, the noun form? Yeah, uh, they go with us, right? They're an accomplice in the event. Um, but nonetheless, they are not the, uh, the ones primarily responsible. Okay, so with that, uh, let's catch up to where we are here, okay? What is addiction according to Scripture? And I have you turned to Romans chapter 1 um, because Romans 1 gives us a, a, um, a way of thinking about people. Um, this text describes what all sinful human beings do when they come into the world. Now, let's just look at what, uh, how this works, okay? Um, let's start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So, so what is this saying? This is saying God made all things, and when we wake up in the morning and we look out the window, we have sufficient testimony. We have enough evidence to conclude that there is a God who's real and that he made everything. Okay, that's what this is saying. But because of our sin, because of our fallenness, we reject the clear testimony of creation that says God is real. That's what all sinful people do. Now, why would we do that? Why would sin want to drive us away from admitting that there's a God and admitting that this wonderful creation around us, which is a, a clear picture of the fact that God exists... Why would all sinful human beings reject that testimony? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, unbelievers know God at that level, they don't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Okay, now we see why. Why would human beings reject the evidence that God exists? Because they don't want to honor him. They don't want to thank him. They don't, listen, they don't want to live under his authority. And th this is the predicament of fallen, the fallen human condition. We want to live free to do whatever we want to do. We don't want some God up there dictating what we do and don't do. We don't want some God giving us his rules and giving us his commands because we want to we live Burger King theology your way right away, right? We want to do whatever we want to do. We want to be autonomous. 
We want to be independent. We want to do whatever we want to do. So in rejecting God, that's the goal, just to live however we want to live. We don't want to be under his authority. So we don't honor him. We don't thank him. Now, now notice, we, and then it says they became futile in their speculation. What that means is as fallen men and women reject God, they grow more and more corrupt in their thinking about life and about what's important. Which is why when I was watching college football last night, and maybe you were watching college football last night, and you see people whose entire well-being depend on their team winning. And you watch this. You will meet grumpy people this week. And they are grumpy because their team didn't win. Okay, now we can laugh at that and say, well, what's the harm in that? But I'm serious. There are people that are so into this football thing it, it literally is the sun that their solar system revolves around. It really is. And, and I like college football just as much as you. My wife likes it more than I do. But uh, I like college fo- football just like you guys do. But, but when we take that and we make it too important, see, how do we get to the place where people are yelling and screaming and being violent and, and you know, dumping tons of their, their money on the, and, and you go, what is wrong with you? They become futile in their speculation. Somewhere along the way, they said, I think football's pretty important. I think this is what life's all about. Okay? And again, you understand, I'm, I'm not here bagging on football. I like football like you do. But that's what he's talking about. We just start to come up with all our own ideas about what life is about and about what's important, and we drift further and further away from reality because we reject the God who defines and explains reality for us. Now, now keep going. Stay with me if you're with me, okay? So, so what do these people do? They become foolish, futile in their speculation. Their heart is darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. What that means is, as they are moving further and further away from the truth of God and what is true to reality, they're getting more and more wrong in their thinking, but in their confidence, they're growing. Right? They think of themselves as very wise and very confident. We, we, we know what, how this is. Right? We, we, we're the experts, even though they're, they're, they're 27 miles away from the truth of Scripture. And, and, and still moving further away. And then we see, guys, and you've heard me talk about this before, this little word, it's the key word in this section, in verse 23, it's the word exchange. Do you see that there? What do, now, now zoom out for a minute. We're talking about all human beings, okay? So this is you, this is me, this is what we all do. Romans is describing what we all do as fallen human beings before Christ, okay, as unbelievers, What do we all do? Verse 23, we exchange. We exchange. What what do we exchange? We exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Now, Now, stop, stop, because that won't make sense unless you understand what he's talking about. He's talking here about the primary activity that God made human beings to engage in. What is the primary activity that God hardwired in all human beings to engage in? Worship. Okay? Now, don't think of worship as, you know, that singing part of the service that we're going to do. I mean, that is worship, but that's not all that worship is. Don't think about worship as, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on my knees before some idol, right? Worship is the activity of exclusive allegiance and loyalty 
and love and trust. That's worship. Worship is the activity of exclusive allegiance and loyalty and love and trust, right? That's what God designed us to do, that we would love him supremely. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Uh, That we would trust him completely, that we would be fully loyal to him. You shall have no other gods before me, okay? Is this fitting together? That's worship. And the activity of that love and that trust and that allegiance and that obedience and that following is what the Bible calls worship. But what happens to us in our fallenness? All human beings, we reject God, we come up with our own ideas about life, and then what do we do? We don't stop worshiping, we exchange gods, right? They exchange, what does it say here? The glory of the incorruptible God, so we're not worshiping him anymore, we exchange him for an image in the form of corruptible man. We exchange the the God of Scripture for a false God of the gridiron, of a relationship, of an activity, of a food, of social media, of a thousand different things, many of which are God's good gifts, right? We're not bagging on all those things. But we exchange worship of the true God for, as it says here, an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. And, and he, he, he clarifies it here in 25, in case you're confused. Verse 25, For they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Now, don't get caught up on creature. Creature just means anything in creation becomes our God to the detriment of worshiping the creator who made all those things. Okay, you with me? So, think about this. God made us for him to worship him. There should be, stay with me, there should be a compulsive, repetitive loyalty to him, shouldn't there? There should be a compulsive, repetitive love for God. There should be a compulsive, repetitive obedience to God and trust of God. You take what an addiction is at its core and you say it's not the activity that's wrong. It's where it's pointed at. God didn't make us to live in front of a bottle. He made us to live in front of Him. He didn't didn't make us to sit in front of a video game for 24 hours a day and and give ourselves over to that and neglect relationships and neglect hygiene and neglect all... He made us to sit in front of Him. You you see this? The the love, the loyalty, the trust, the obedience, the activity that that we see in addiction that's compulsive and cyclical and and life-dominating... It's not that activity that's wrong. It's the object that's wrong. We were made to do that, to worship God like that. And what Romans is saying is, in our fallenness, that worship engine is still running it on all eight cylinders, but it's aimed in the wrong direction. It's pointed at the wrong things. It's locked on to things that are not worthy of our worship. But we nonetheless buy into them 
as God's. Does that make sense? Do you see that? Can you, and maybe, maybe you don't struggle with alcohol, you don't struggle with drugs or any of the things that, but can you see how in our fallenness we want to give that love and loyalty and trust and obedience and activity and attention and focus to a thousand other things other than God sometimes? Do you see that in yourself? Okay, so, so, so I'm going to say this, and, and then you, you send me nasty emails if you disagree, okay? We're all addicts at heart, aren't we? At some level, apart from the gospel, and, and even redeemed people, as we want this loyalty, we, we, we know Christ, we're, we're forgiven, we're justified, we, we're thankful for that, and yet you know you're going to wake up, just like you did this morning, and there are going to be competing false deities behind every corner. And you will have to choose this day whom you will serve. Right? You'll have to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You'll have to turn away from a thousand good things to worship and wrap your life around the best thing. The one who alone is worthy of our worship. Right? So you see that? So, so, so the Bible comes at this thing called addiction it's not clinical. It's not like you know a, a you know a small percentage of the population have that problem, and then there's the rest of us normal people that are healthy. No, no, no. The Bible says we all have this the, this idolatry problem in our hearts, and, and maybe we don't all end up with alcohol or meth or or, or something like that. We all, don't all have a gambling problem, but we all struggle with worship disorders, and so there, there's something very helpful, something very humbling even to start thinking about addictions by saying this isn't a problem that some people have. This is a problem that we all have at some level or another. And that's why if you're helping somebody that is struggling with some of these things, you don't go to them saying, hey, well, I'm, I'm the normal healthy person and we're going to get you healed. We're going to get you. No, no, this is you know, I'm a beggar looking for bread. <laughs> this, is, this is, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, just like you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And maybe our idols are different, but our problem is the same, and the solution in the Lord Jesus Christ is the same. And that's how we approach ministry. That's how we approach our neighbors and our friends and our family members. Um, you know, a lot of people that are not Christians, when we try to help them, they say, oh, you're, you're just self-righteous, right? You're just holier than thou. And you know what a great comeback, when, when you're accused of that, a great comeback to that is say you know what i'm so glad you brought that up i'm so glad you brought that up because the reality is i'm the chief of sinners the reality is i'm the biggest sinner in this room and i'm not coming here looking down on you i'm not coming here to criticize you i'm coming down because as one beggar to another i've found bread in fact i found better than bread i found the bread of life and i want to teach you about him i want to introduce you to him that's how we do ministry. Okay? So, that's how the Bible comes at addiction. It's a worship issue. Okay, that was introduction. So, the, the Bible comes at this specifically, thinking about it through the lens of drunkenness as the most common illustration of what I've just described. It's the prototype biblical example in that it informs all other addiction, which means we can study what the Bible says about alcohol and drunkenness, and we can apply it to, to meth and Xanax, we can apply it to video games, we can apply it to gambling, we can apply it to why you look at your phone too much, and all the rest. Now, the most common way the Bible describes the experience of addiction 
is by comparing it to bondage. Okay, I want you to see this. So flip back to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Um, we need to remember that in, in Jesus' culture, uh, there was slavery. And by God's grace, uh, we don't have slavery in American culture anymore. That's a good thing. Praise the Lord for that. But we have, we have to think as we read this passage that Jesus is talking to people who are living in a culture where slavery does exist. And that's important that we remember that. So, in John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is talking to, um, uh, in context, he has a, a crowd around him. And in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, it says here, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Okay, so, so, so picture it. There's Jesus, he's preaching to all these Jewish people around him. And these Jewish people have made a profession of faith. They said, we want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, great, you know, uh, if you continue in these things, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they go, wait a minute. We're not in bondage. We don't need to be freed. In fact, look at what they say. This is interesting. Verse 33, they answered and said, we are Abraham's descendants. And have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Which tells you they didn't know their Israel history. Because did you forget about that whole Egypt thing? The 400 years deal? Anyway. You know, insert your comment about knowing your history and all that. But anyway. Yeah, so they say, yeah, we're Jews. We're Israelites. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you will say you will become free? Now, of course, they're not thinking historically. They're thinking right now right which which again is a bit of a misnomer because who's controlling their whole their whole region right now rome is and and there's a benevolent somewhat of a benevolent relationship between rome and the jewish state you understand that uh and you remember the whole story about pontius pilate and king herod and all that good stuff but nonetheless they're thinking you know we're we don't have a slavery problem right We're, we're free and jesus says oh no you're not no you think you're free but you're not look at verse 34 jesus answered them Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, that means we need to listen to him, by the way, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, just, just, that's not even the main point of the passage. He's going to go on and explain this, but, but just let that sink in. When we come into the world as unbelievers committing sin, we are very much enslaved. And like slavery, your master is sin and you don't have freedom to say no. You have to sin. As an unbeliever, enslaved to sin. Jesus says the one who commits sin is a slave of sin. That's why we do it. Right. Um, with that in mind, flip over to, to Romans chapter six. I know Pastor Terry just covered this a few weeks ago, but let me let me remind you of this in Romans chapter six. the The way we think about this uh, 
Remember, I'm a pastor, not an artist, so don't laugh. Just trying to make a point. Okay, the way we think about this is we come into the world chained to sin. Sin is our master. We are enslaved or chained to it. And and you know how this works, right? Uh, Wherever you go, what goes with you? Sin, right? You can go to Walmart. Sin comes with you. Go play with your grandkids. Sin goes with you. You can't get away from it. You are enslaved to it. Now, the Bible calls this, the Bible has a word. What what does the Bible call this, this truth that all fallen people are enslaved to sin? What's that called? Okay, it does relate to the flesh. Bondage. There you go. Yeah. And that is one of the four main problems that Jesus came to solve in his life, death, and resurrection, is the problem of bondage. Now, you know that in the gospel, something happens. Look at Romans chapter 6. What happens when a person repents and trusts in Christ? Uh, Romans 6, starting in verse 1, tells us that we are united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. And there are wonderful results of that. So let's pick it up in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Do you see that? So, so this is the hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free, right? What Wesley's talking about in that hymn is the addressing of the problem of bondage in the gospel. And what Paul is arguing is when you trust Christ and you are connected with him, you are united with him, one of the benefits is you participate with Jesus in his death and in his burial and his resurrection. And in that participation... You are freed, that chain is broken, and as it says here, you are no longer a slave to sin. Okay, you with me? Uh, by the way, what's, what's that aspect of the gospel called when Jesus deals with bondage and breaks the, the powers that we're no longer a slave? What's that called? Okay, it is a part of salvation, you're right, but there, there's, a, there's a technical word for it. Not justification, that's where he declares us not guilty but righteous. That's a legal term. What's the slavery term? Yeah, redemption. There you go. Redemption is when Jesus breaks the chain. Redemption means he, he goes, as it were, to the slavery market and he buys us back out of sin through the payment of what theologians call a ransom not not ransom like you know my pirate you know the pirates are carried my family off and there's a ransom not ransom like that but a payment of his own life to free us from a master of sin and to make us free it's called redemption okay so when the bible describes addiction it's using language that revolves around bondage so we we read words like slave enslaved and you've seen this 
The Bible talks about being enslaved to too much wine. Have you read that before? It's in your Bible. Enslaved to too much wine. Why why enslaved? Why not they drink too much? Because it's making a theological point. It's giving us a lens to think about addiction through. It's a slavery issue. It's a bondage issue. Enslaved to too much wine is is the way the Bible comes at this. So on your notes there, uh, addiction is being compared to bondage, to slavery, being enslaved, being ruled, and all of those verses there help us to think about that. Now, what's interesting is people were created by God to be dependent on him, weren't they? Did you notice, and we could go back and look at this in Genesis, did you notice when God made Adam and Eve, he did not upload to their brains everything that they needed to know to live? Now, could he have done that? Could God have uploaded everything to the brains of Adam and Eve that they needed to know? Could he have done that? Sure. Why didn't he? In fact, it's weird. He makes the perfect people. And then he does something absolutely crazy. He gives them information. In fact, he doesn't just give them information. He gives them commands. Right? He says, uh, see all these trees in the garden? They're great for lunch, breakfast, dinner, afternoon snack, midnight snack. Right? Enjoy! But there's one tree you can't eat from. In fact, guys, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Why didn't he just like make them knowing that? Why did he have to tell them? Why does he go to Adam and he says, uh, you see all the animals here? Yeah. Um, I want you to name them. I'll come back in a few hours and tell me the names. Okay. What is that? You know, why didn't the animals came pre-named, right? You, you, you have all these questions that come up. And the answer is God is emphasizing that we are not made, even in perfection, even Adam and Eve in perfection, we're not made autonomous and independent. What are they made? Man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's not a post-fall arrangement. That's the way it's always been. That we would depend on God, that we would depend on His Word, depend on His counsel. We're not independent. We don't have everything pre-programmed. And we need to depend on God and relate to Him. And, and, and not only that, Adam and Eve were not self-irrigating, were they? They had to go look at the trees that... Who provided for them? Well, that's God. To provide their nourishment. To provide their sustenance. You know, every night, what do you have to do? Well, some of you don't do this, but you need to do it more often. We have to sleep. Why did God make it like that? To remind us that we are dependent, right? So God made people to be dependent on him. Now the fall resulted in people striving for autonomy and self-sufficiency, leading them to depend on other things in place of God. We looked at that in Romans chapter 1. But here's the thing. Why do people inordinately depend on things like alcohol or drugs? Well, in part because God made them to be dependent. The problem is in our sin, we look to depend on the wrong things instead of the right things. So we were made by God to be dependent. Being dependent is a good thing. And I don't want to you know, step on you know, American independentism here today, but you think about that, that as glorious as that is, 
people are not independent. We're not made. We can't be. If we think we are, that's delusion, isn't it? Because God made us to be dependent on him. And you know how this is. Remember the last time you were sick? You're like, I'm dying. The sky is falling. I got that flu bug. And I'm, you know, God can reduce us to the size of a slug with one stinking little virus to remind us just how dependent we are on him. Right? So what happens in addiction is that that fallen dependence gets aimed at the wrong things. And now instead of depending on God, who made us to depend on him in, in, in good and holy ways, now we're depending on all these other things, whether it's food or sex or alcohol, relationship or, or some other thing. But that's where addiction starts. Now, if we are honest... Um, we recognize that our theology that we already know helps us to understand addiction. So, so just walk with me through this, okay? A comprehensive biblical view of sin helps us to see that sin in the Bible is both an inescapable inner principle, but also overt calculated rebellion. So, so I'm going to ask you a theological question. It's not a trick question, but it's very important. Can an addict just say no? Okay, I like how you're thinking. Sometimes Christians look at others in addiction and they go, they just need to say no. It's a self-control problem. Just just stop, you know? Don't do it. And a part of that is right because God does hold us responsible for our choices. But brothers and sisters, that's bad theology. We, We know better than that theologically Uh, let me explain this to you Uh, you remember just a few weeks ago terry in romans chapter 7 reminded us of what romans 7 23 says that sin is a law sin is a law now we have to think about that because there are two types of laws right so let's say that um let's say that drew over there um is driving down 377 and uh, he's in a hurry to get home. It's been a long day at the office. And um, he goes a little bit too fast over the speed limit. And uh, uh, Deputy Looper, who was just here a moment ago, one of uh, Hood County's finest, right, the lights come on, all that. No, no, Drew would never do that, of course. I'm just picking on him here. But, um, okay, and, and now you have a law that the city of Granbury imposes on not just its citizens, but anybody that passes by that stretch of 377 through our town, that if you're not doing 55 when you hit uh, you know, the, one, the uh, 167 intersection there, Fall Creek, uh, you could get pulled over because you are breaking a law. Okay, That's one type of law. Now that type of law, you can choose to break or you can choose to keep, right? That's not the type of law that Paul is talking about here when he says sin is like a law. The type of law that Paul has in mind here when he says sin is law is he's thinking about a law like the law of gravity. The law of gravity. Now, if I drop this, what will happen? It will fall. Which way is it going to fall? Is it going to fall up or down? How do you know? Practice. I've dropped many pens in my life, right? How do you know that? 
It's the way God made it. And in fact, God has made gravity so precise, we can model it with a math equation that's right every time. Right? That's why we can make rockets and cool things like that. So yeah, see, there it is, okay? Uh, your science demonstration for the day class. Now, can you get up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm just really sick of this gravity thing. You know, I want to jump out of the window in a single bound. I want to leap over tall buildings. Could you just wake up and say, I'm rebelling against gravity today? Could you do that? Well, you can do it once and find out you're wrong and probably dead. But no, you can't disobey gravity because unlike the speed limit, which is a law you may or may not choose to keep, gravity is a law imposed upon you by the way God made this universe. And even if you try your hardest, you can't disobey it. You are always subject to gravity. You say, well, what about astronauts? Well, even astronauts are subject to gravity. They just put themselves in a you know, low Earth orbit through high, high speed of rotational kinematics and overcome gravity, not by reducing gravity, but by counteracting it and thus experiencing weightlessness. But we'll talk about that later on if you want to know how that works. But anyway, um, the, but, but the point, a lot, of, a lot of people, and I say that because a lot of people think astronauts are not in gravity, but they are. They can't, they can't get out of gravity any more than anybody else. But if you go really, really fast in a circle, you can counteract it and experience weightlessness. Just like at Six Flags, when you go over the top of a roller coaster and you feel weightless for a minute, it's the same thing. But astronauts are just doing that all the, anyway, you don't want to know that. Okay, so, um, Sin is a law in the sense of an inescapable inner principle. It's like slavery. It's like being chained. You can't get out of it. And the Bible says that's what sin is like. It's an inescapable inner principle. In fact, it's like a taskmaster and people are slaves to it. That's what Jesus says in John 8, 34. Anyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And in fact, the Bible describes sin as this internal power. It's interesting. The Bible actually personifies sin sometimes. You know what I mean by that? The, the Bible gives sin personality at some point. Now, now sin is, is not a person, of course. But uh, follow me. Let's look at one more example here in Genesis chapter 4. I want you to see this. Um, Genesis chapter 4. And as you're turning there, this is Cain and Abel, right? This is the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, you remember the story that uh, uh, both of the boys, the sons of Adam and Eve, brought God sacrifices. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5, that when Cain, when his sacrifice was rejected, chapter 4, verse 5 now, Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Do you see that there in verse 5? Verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? See, see, Cain responded sinfully to God's rejection of his sacrifice. What Cain should have done is, oh, did I do something wrong? I'd like to correct that, God. Right? Or, or maybe he had maliciousness in his heart or jealousy in his heart. Oh, I repent, Lord. I'll bring it with a whole heart. I'll bring it with a, with a right heart. That's what he should have done. But instead, he gets angry and depressed. So God comes to him and says, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? And, and then God warns him. And this is so insightful. Listen to this. In verse uh, 7. 
Cain, if you do well, and, and what he means is, Cain, if you will do what is right, if you will respond in the right way, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Meaning your feelings are going to change, right? But if you do not do what is right, if you do not do well, sin, now notice the personification here, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must master it. You know, we could all huddle up behind the door and wait for the next poor latecomer to Sunday school to walk in the door and we could jump and scare that person. And God tells Cain, that's what your sin is like. It's behind the next corner. It's behind the next conversation. It's behind the next experience. It's crouching and it's looking for an opportunity to do what? What do the text say? What is sin waiting for an opportunity to do? Master you. Control you. Take over your life. Run your life. Dominate your life. Become the sole focus of your life. That's what sin does. Sin is, listen, sin is always fighting for the steering wheel of your life. So that it can run you into a ditch of sin and foolishness. And yet God tells Cain, you must master it. Its desire is to control you. You must master it. So that's sin. Now, what does that sound like? We've talked about being out of control. We've talked about slavery. We've talked about I have to obey it. It's a law. Sounds like addiction, doesn't it? Addicts say the same things. I can't help myself. I can't stop. I feel like I'm out of control. It feels like something in me trying to take over. And I want to stop. And I can't. And and we Christians say, well, yeah. That's not just your problem. That's a human pro- That's all of our problems. That, that's all of us before Christ. And maybe you didn't have a drug or alcohol problem. Maybe you didn't have a, a gambling or video game problem. But you had an addiction. There was something that you lived for apart from Christ. There was something that dominated your life other than Christ. And it took the gospel to awaken us to see that that's not what life is about. It's about living for him. And we turn away. That's what repentance is. Repentance is when we turn away from all those things that we were living for before Christ and we turn to the one true and living God who is alone worthy of our worship. But you see here, sin is this inescapable inner principle. It's slavery. It's an internal power. And oh, by the way, John does tell us in 1 John 3, 4 that sin is lawlessness, right? There's sometimes sin is just good old-fashioned heavy-handed rebellion. Well, we do that too. But the point is, if that's really the situation, and just just to underscore this, this is not the addict's situation. This is is everybody's situation. So when I asked you the question a moment ago, can an addict just say no? Could you have just said no to your sin? Or did you need a savior to rescue you? You see? We're all slaves We're all in bondage. And if we could just turn it off and make a better decision, then we didn't need a Savior. But the reality is, as we learned uh, several months ago in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together we've all become useless. 
And our only hope, brothers and sisters, is if God reaches down and rescues us. If He walks up to the slave market and sees us on the slave block in bondage to our master's sin, our only hope is if Jesus walks up and says, I want that one for myself. And He pays the money for our freedom. And and I hope you're seeing that Sin is not something that any of us just say no to. It's something that we can't say no to. It's why we need a Savior. It's why we need rescue. It's why we needed the gospel. And and praise God, if you're here and you belong to Christ, do you realize that that was a miracle? That it took God taking the initiative to go seek after you before you ever sought after Him in that way? And you know, if that's true for us, What do we see? We see that people who need help in addiction need nothing less than the gospel. I mean, I mean, can can AA help some people get sober? Well, sure it can. You know, I mean, can an addiction treatment center help you get off your meth addiction and 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 not? Sure it can. But it can't change this. It can't free you. In fact, what unbelievers do when they have managed to overcome one idol is they replace it with another idol. So, so what if a drunk dies sober without Jesus? Does that really matter? So what I'm trying to, to get at here is we have the gospel. We have the answer. We have the message. In fact, it's not, we don't just have it. It's been entrusted to us as stewards for people that are struggling with all sorts of addictions. And we've got the answer in the gospel. So, so I hope that as we think about this, we will be thankful that we had a God who rescued us out of our bondage. And he's continuing to work in our life to help us to put off those idols and live for him and worship him alone. I hope that you're more thankful for that. And I hope that as you, as you come to understand addiction through this lens, you'll see that you don't have to be an addiction therapist expert to help somebody. You need to be a faithful Christian who's willing to give them the gospel and show them how their behavior and their struggle connects with what the Bible says about people and about how Jesus comes and rescues us in that situation. Okay? Put a comment in your notes. We'll come back. We'll do it again next week. Okay? Lord, thank you for your rescue. Uh, Thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we were hopeless without Christ in bondage to so many things that dishonored you, uh, thank you for your rescue. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the care of your son who freely came to live and die in our place so that we could be freed from sin and reconciled and and made to walk a newness of life as we've read today. And Lord, I pray as redeemed brothers and sisters who still struggle very much with uh, indwelling sin, as we look to Christ, as we walk by means of the Spirit, as we daily renew our minds in the Scriptures, as we put off sin and replace it with righteousness, I pray that you will help us to worship you alone and to turn away from anything in our life that is competing with you for our allegiance and love and affection and trust and obedience. 
Lord, I pray too that uh, if there's someone who's struggling, that they would seek the gospel and they would seek the help of men and women here that can help them um, to walk in, in that manner uh, that we've talked about today in Christ. Lord, I pray too that as we've talked about this, we would have a real burden for people in our community and in our families that struggle, who need Christ and are, and are caught up in so many of these things. Lord, would you help us to be faithful ministers of the gospel? Uh, not in a, a, a flippant way to just trust Jesus because he's the answer to everything, but in a way that helps people to see that the bondage of their addiction is the bondage of the human condition. And Jesus comes to free us from that bondage. And that there's hope. So Lord, give us new resolve to take the gospel and to help people that are struggling. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your word today. In Christ's name, amen.